Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. The Discourse, a short-form, one-on-one interview podcast with filmmakers, actors, and other industry folks, hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo. My guest today is filmmaker Joe Dante, who, if you're a child of the 80s or 90s like me, you know he's the director of classics like Gremlins 1 and 2, The Howling, Inner Space, Explorers, The Burbs, Matinee, so much more. Joe is currently out promoting his Scream Factory TV and Shout Factory TV takeover, which is titled Joe Dante's Film Inferno. It's basically Joe going through the Shout Factory catalog and picking seven of his favorite horror and genre classics from the 40s, 50s, and 60s and taking you through them, introducing you to each one and why he picked them. Joe Dante's Film Inferno will be simulcast on ScreamFactoryTV.com, ShoutFactoryTV.com, as well as the Shout Factory TV app on September 3rd, starting at noon Pacific and 3 p.m. Eastern time. If you're a film buff like me, it should be just a no-brainer to spend the day with Joe and his favorite films. During our chat, we got to touch on a lot of his fan-favorite films like Gremlins and my personal favorite, Explorers, and even projects he didn't get to make, like his Halloween film and the you know Batman movie he never touched on. Uh, we even get to talk about the Gremlins cartoon for HBO Max that should be coming up uh, next year. But before I shoot you over to the interview, I've got to tell you that the Discourse is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, Bingeworthy, both of which I'm a part of. Also, Be Real, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, and more can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or a rating as we do very much appreciate it. Okay, here's my conversation with the great, the iconic, the very kind Joe Dante. Hey, Joe, how are you today? Thanks for, for talking to me. Uh, thanks. thanks for wanting to. Oh, man. I Like, seriously, I've interviewed a lot of people. This is one of the highlights of everybody I've interviewed. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so like a lot of people who did, I watched and rewatched a lot of your films, and this is a huge, huge honor for me, so I really appreciate it. Well, let's hope I don't crap out on you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... 
Uh, hope you're okay talking about some of the old favorites today, because I could go all day. If, if old favorites know. are my life. Good. <laughs> so let's jump back at least to start. You know, you got started early kind of in the you, you were working before Roger Corman, but you were in that house of Roger Corman, if you will. And he had I quite would, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Roger. Exactly. Corman. Exactly. So he had quite a few people like that who talented filmmakers who came out of his films. And he was a mentor of sorts to you, as you were saying. And I guess I was just wondering, you know, to start what you took away from working with him and uh, why didn't you guys intersperse more? Did you just kind of go out you know, on your own paths, that kind of thing? Well, as as Roger once said, if you make two two good pictures for me, you'll never have to work for me again. <laughs> uh, and uh, and if you look at the trajectory of the people who went through that experience, very few of them returned. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they did. Peter Bogdanovich did. I did uh, about 10 years ago to do a thing for Netflix with him. Oh, that's right. uh, but um, we, uh, we, 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 the, the, the whole group of us learned, uh, well, how to make a movie, obviously, but most importantly, we learned how to make decisions mm-hmm. and we learned the value of a dollar, uh, which is, was very important to Roger. And, 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 and as we discovered is very important to the people who are giving you many more dollars than Roger used to give you. Uh, because after all it is, there are, there is a budget and there is a timeline and you have to be able to get good work, uh, in that amount of time. And uh, I, I would say that the one thing that Roger instilled in all of us, I think, was confidence in the fact that if we could make a movie for him with all of these obstacles thrown on our path uh, that turned out half decent, then uh, we could do the same for other people who would probably material that might be considered a little higher brow. Uh, and Piranha, which you guys worked on together, it kind of inadvertently established this relationship with Steven Spielberg, did it not? Accidentally, I didn't realize that until much later that uh, right. that that it uh, that Universal was a little PO'd that the, this this cheap little Jaws ripoff was coming out the same year as this is the expensive sequel to Jaws, uh, and they apparently had I, the story I heard afterward it was that uh, they had thought about getting an injunction uh, to keep the picture from being released as they had done with several other shark themed uh, movies from overseas. The story goes that Stephen saw the picture and said, uh, no, you guys don't get it. This is a parody. He didn't mention that it was also a ripoff. <laughs> but uh, and anyway, he I guess he, he said it's it's OK with me. And so they didn't do anything about it, which was good news for me because if that picture hadn't come out. I don't know what my next picture would have been. Probably humanoids yeah. of the deep. Yeah, something like that. But it was the howling, turns out, yeah. which still one of the best werewolf films of all time certainly one of the best you know werewolf transformation scenes they have a bunch of good ones in there how was it working with rick baker on those practical effects i'm always amazed by his work well i worked with rick uh, initially on that picture um because he'd always wanted to do a werewolf picture and uh, i knew he had not he, he'd been asked to do john landis's picture but that had never materialized uh, and so he, he came on and started working uh on our picture and when when landis heard about it uh, he called him up and said rick you can't do this you got to work for me i'm gonna i'm gonna make my movie now and so he so rick uh left us in a direction that that he had already pioneered but he left us in the capable hands of uh his protege rob botine who i had worked with on, on piranha and he was when he was like 17 or something wow uh and rob uh, came up and um really filled rick's shoes and and and, uh, and did an amazing job on a, a fraction of the budget that rick had for the landis picture 
So you are responsible for both the howling and getting American Werewolf in London off the ground, basically. <laughs> I would say inadvertently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty insane. So two amazing werewolf films. Both came out in the same year. Which one came first? I don't remember. Well, we I mean, I wasn't around. finished shooting, I think, before he started his. But wow. ours, ours was uh, opened in Europe, but didn't open in America until later. Okay. Interesting. Man, that's crazy. Anyways, your next major release, Gremlins, obviously needs no introduction. It's a giant hit. It's the film that people likely bring up to you the most. It's your Amblin film, with you know, for the first one with Steven Spielberg. It's, it's the one that'll be on my tombstone when I get hit by a bus. Exactly. It's the tombstone. The headline will be Gremlins director gets hit by a bus. But... <laughs> Hopefully that's not the way you go. But, you know, if it is, I'll save the headline. It helped establish this Amblin kind of oeuvre, which, you know, often genre films with family friendly twists, you know, that kind of stuff. But it never really talked down to the audience. The kids were always super authentic. Was that a noted mandate at the time or was that something that you kind of helped create with with everybody there? I don't think there was really any mandate because, you know, it was initially going to be uh, a low budget horror film in the, in, in, the, in the tradition of the things that I had been previously doing uh, because Stephen wanted to uh, get his company off the ground with a, with a movie that made money and everybody knew that horror movies were a safe bet. Uh, and I had just made two of them. It was only when we started to realize the, mag the magnitude of the, the challenge that we, we were setting for ourselves that we realized that we weren't going to be able to make this picture non-union in, in Oregon like Stephen had <laughs> wanted. We we're going to have to make it uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and he got Warner Brothers involved to you know, give us a, a, enough money to, to make the movie happen. But the technology really didn't exist. We had to make it up as we were going along. So it was just a sort of a, tr let's try to stay, a, uh, stay abreast of all this while we were making the movie. We made a lot of changes because there were so many things in the script that the Grumman's could not do yeah. physically. And then Stephen had this, what I think has turned out to be the most brilliant idea involved with the movie, which was that just before, about a month before shooting, he decided that this gizmo character uh, who we had built, it was very small and was cute, should stick around for the whole movie. He shouldn't turn into the bad gremlin, which he did originally. Right, him and Stripe were the same. Be the hero's pal. And uh, that struck us with horror because <laughs> this little bag of bolts that we had built was like maybe good for two reels, but there was no way it was going <laughs> to carry the movie. And so we had to really scramble to try to figure out a way to make this character into something that could last the whole movie. Uh, and we built giant versions of it and, and we had to change the size of half the stuff because the gears didn't fit in. And we did different faces and different heads. And, you know, we, we really went to town on trying to make this character work. And I think it's the soul of the movie. I think one of the reasons that the picture is still popular is because of that character. And still works. Um, yeah. There were so day. many, there were so many imitations of, 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 gremlins that had only gremlins in them only gremlin yes. type monsters in them that have more or less gone by the wayside this one hasn't i think largely because of the heart that it has because that's the appeal of the movie and uh, and that's again the that's an emblem thing yeah and then you know famously because of gremlins because of temple of doom the pg-13 rating was created how does that feel to have that as part of your legacy? To be like, yeah, PG 13's around because of me, or was that not really a big deal? Well, I, it's uh, you said that as if PG 13 is a bad thing. I mean, no, actually, it's great. It, was a, it, was a, it was a needed correlative uh, to the way the pictures were being uh, marketed at the time. And uh, what's interesting is that neither of those pictures has been re rated PG 13. They're still officially <laughs> rated PG. Yeah. <laughs> Although all the movies that followed were all PG 13. Yeah, Gremlins 2 was definitely PG-13, but that's so wildly different in tone. Like, it really takes the motto of everything but the kitchen sink 
to heart, like that movie. I love it so much. It's the definition of bonkers. How did you swing the tone so wildly? And was that like right away you wanted to do something like super different? Well, the the tone of even the first movie was always in question. Uh, you know, that the, the studio didn't understand the movie. They didn't understand the, the, the shifts between horror and comedy in that picture until they went to the preview. Yeah. And then when they went to the preview and the audience was like gaga over it, they st- suddenly realized, Ooh, wait a minute, maybe we could do some merchandising here. Uh, <laughs> and then it became obviously a, a, a surprise hit. Um, and then they kept trying to repeat over the years, they say, like, well, we need another one of those, you know, but we don't really understand the first one. But well, let's let's hire some people and, and write a new script. The Grumman's can go to Las Vegas or the Grumman's can go to Mars. Or, you know? And and they didn't they didn't get it. So they they and they realized that. So they came back to me and Mike Fennell, the producer, and they said, well, you guys obviously had something to do with the success of the picture. So uh, why don't you um, make us another one by this date? And if you do that, we'll let you do whatever you want. And my view was. This was not a movie that needed a sequel. It wasn't set up to have a sequel. Um, but if we were going to do a sequel, we wanted to make the fans happy who liked the first picture, but we also wanted to do something completely different. So that meant taking it out of a small town setting and putting it in the city uh, and just amping up everything and making it a, a sort of a, a parody of the 90s. And that's what that's what we did. And uh, it... it Unfortunately, they juggled the release date a couple times, and they kind of they kind of blew that, uh, and and it didn't make as much money as they had hoped because it was five years. I mean, it was almost five years for the first picture. You don't usually wait that long. Mm-hmm. I think Ghostbusters made the same mistake. That's true, but still, you know, uh, people who grew up with it on TV, you know, would do Gremlins and Gremlins two back to back. They'd never know. Oh, no, people. That, the great thing about movies now is that people don't know anymore yeah. whether they were hits or not. I mean, Inner Space was a movie people love. And, Same, it was, right here. and it was uh, it was generally derided as a giant flop when it came out. Uh, but people don't know that because it was a huge hit on video. And that's the, the, the new the new paradigm is if people if a lot of people see it, it's a hit. And there if, if they see it, if they don't go to theaters to see it, they'll see it somewhere else. And now, of course, the whole landscape has changed. I mean, the, the theaters are competing with streaming and half the theaters closed during COVID anyway. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different world as far as, you know, trying to get eyeballs in front of your movie. Yeah. And obviously Gremlins is this engine that could, uh, I mean, with the animated prequel coming up, the Which Secret is very Star good, Marvel. by the way. Nice. So you, so how much are you involved in it? I'm well, curious. I'm, I, I asked, I found out they were doing it and I said, is there anything I can do? I'll be glad to help. And they said, sure. And, and so I, they made me the quote creative consultant, uh, and I think now I'm called consulting producer. But um, basically, I just you know I, I I talked to them, I gave them my my ideas, uh, and I looked at what they were doing, and I looked at all the storyboards, and and the, they saw the animatics, and uh, they ran all that stuff past me, and so I I was and I made some suggestions, and and they were very nice, and I've I've since been to the uh, Annecy Animation Festival. With those with the guys the, the creators and uh, they're very smart guys and they're very funny and um the movie is now apparently the show is apparently now going to come on to hbo max i believe at the beginning of next year it was supposed to be this fall but now there's a lot of turmoil over it of course and, yeah yeah Warner brothers and um we're, but i don't think they can access completely because they've already got they got two seasons <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they, they did one season and they ordered another season so they're they're they've got some money invested in this thing so i mean i, I don't think it's going to be the new batgirl but i think <laughs> it's gonna i think it's gonna see the light of day 
fingers and, crossed. And it's a very, it's a very, it's a very nice, it's a very nice show. It's, it's, it gets, it gets, it starts out very, very family friendly, and then it, as it goes on, it gets a little scarier. Um, but it's, um, it's, and it's very nicely animated. So it might be for families, you know, these days what it was, no, what Gremlins was for me. It's a total family thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's no more horrific than Gremlins too. Exactly. So I also want to circle back to Explorers, which is probably my favorite film of yours for nostalgic reasons, just because I watched it so much when I was growing up. It's chock full of like references and Easter eggs to other films, some of yours, some of Spielberg, some of Star Wars, older films, but the kids, like I was saying before, they're so authentic. They're so believable. For those who don't know, it's Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix that debuted in Explorers and they're instantly amazing. How do you look back at Explorers and how does it feel to have discovered those two great actors? Well, it was the, the, the nice thing that I think of when I think of that movie was that making it with those kids was great. It was like being a dad for, uh, <laughs> for a summer. And I, what, what struck me was how uh, similar they were in their thoughts and fears to the way I was when I was their age. And one of the, one of the boons of being the director is that you get the, you get the, uh, the sound in your ear along with the sound guy. And then the kids are off going to the bathroom or up in the, up in the thunder road, up on stilts in front of a green screen. You're going to hear them. You hear what they say to each other. And it's, it's like, it's like eavesdropping kind of, but um, (laughs) it was just, it was so funny and it was so endearing to hear them talk the way that I talked when I was their age. Uh, and so that, that part of it was great. They, they were, they were wonderful. It was, they, they didn't stint on, they, they spent the money on the special effects. It looks great. Uh, what they didn't do is they, uh, they didn't, um, the people who hired me weren't, weren't still there uh, mm. when the picture was being edited and they, they had left and the new people came in and said, what do we got? We got this. Oh, good. Let's put this out now. Yeah. And I pointed out that there were two more months of post-production to do. And they said, no, 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 just stop. Stop work and put it out the way it is. Right. So it never got finished. So uh, there are, as you can see, if you buy the Shout Factory DVD that's got I have some it. outtakes on it, um, there was, there was, it, it, was intended, it, it was intended to be a little bit more cohesive than it ended up being. Um, Interesting. And there were things cut out that I think we shouldn't have cut out. And... It's a, it's a it's kind of a lost movie to me because it's not what I was trying to do. But uh, I'm very grateful for the fact that people liked it, and that, you know, they, I would run into people who said, "Oh, I loved this picture when I was a kid," or even, you know, people who are, are still kids and say, "I I love this picture now," uh, which is great. But uh, it is a movie. That, it's the one that got away, as far as yeah. I can see. Yeah, and it 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 also seems so primed for a sequel. Like I know it didn't light up the box box office, but you know, there were ideas and plans open on the day of the live aid concert. Like you, really why, let's compromise your million dollar movie. And then, uh, so that it can open on a day that nobody goes to the movies. That's brilliant. Live these guys, these guys moved on to another company, which they ruined. <laughs> <laughs> so you make explorers and interspace and the burbs between like 85 and 89. I know all of these hold up super well. I've rewatched all of them within the past week. Um, but they, like I said, they weren't necessarily box office successes. How were well, you feeling? Was. The Burbs did very well. That's true. Because of Tom. How were you feeling at the time of the releases? It's very disappointing when your movie doesn't, you know, open. Sure. Uh, and, and there can be a lot of reasons. It can be the wrong date. It can be the advertising. And Explorers had particularly poor advertising. Uh, and Interspace also had a poster that was just a giant thumbnail. And nobody knew it was a comedy. 
uh, although if you went to the theater and see it, it was like people were in the aisles there. Everybody thought it was hilarious. But that, that picture, like almost all the pictures that we're talking about, uh, became popular on home video. Yeah. And that's, and that's really where the legacy uh, lies with not just my films, but a lot of films by my contemporary directors who also, their pictures didn't open theatrically. Because people tended to give up on movies theatrically if they didn't open right away and they didn't do really, really well. It was like the exhibitors, get this out of here and get something else in. Um, and so uh, it was really VHS. I think that the fact that VHS was handed around from family to family and uh, that, that a lot of these movies gained their credence. And then, of course, home video became bigger with the DVDs and uh, laser that discs. And cable networks for a played them. And cable played them, HBO. That, mm -hmm. uh, Beastmaster was a movie that used to be on HBO all the time. And that's what people used to say that the HBO stands for, hey, Beastmaster's on. <laughs> I was definitely one of those people watching Beastmaster and Beastmaster 2 over and over again on HBO. You were also one of those directors who circled, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a number of high profile projects. Uh, I've heard, I think, uh, a Jaws sequel at one point, Jurassic Park, maybe Batman, maybe a Halloween sequel. Are all of these true? And which one was They're maybe the most, the closest? Well, I was actually hired on Halloween 3, uh, but they hadn't greenlit the movie yet. And so... So was it I, the season of the witch, or was it the Michael that. Myers? No, no, it was it was the the the, the one with the one with Dan O'Hurley. The, the, Interesting. The, and uh, and it, Nigel Neal was uh, was was writing it, and I had I had known him before, and uh, I was I was keen to do it, but then the Twilight Zone movie came up, and that was a go. Yeah. And so I, I said to John, I have to I have to do this, and so they went on and did it without me. But um, uh, Jurassic Park, I was one of. Uh, four directors uh, who were considered from different studios and uh, Michael Crichton chose the one who could give him a theme park, which is not surprising. <laughs> not a bad choice. <laughs> uh, and uh, Batman was something that the Warner Brothers offered me right after Grumman's became a big hit. And they, they said, oh, it's great. Now you can do Batman. And I met Bob Kane and I, there was a script by Tom Mankiewicz, which is not the one that was eventually made. And uh, I think Ivan Reitman had been going to do it and then didn't for whatever reason. So that was and the more comedic script? It's for James Bondy, actually. Kind mm. of. Uh, but um, my problem was that I, I was excited to do it because of the Joker. Yeah. And I had met John Lithgow when I was doing Twilight Song because he was in uh, George Miller's episode, and which I directed some of. And uh, I thought he'd be a great Joker. And then I, and I was all excited about doing this movie because of the Joker. And then I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I realized... I can't do this movie. This is, I'm the wrong person. The guy who makes this movie can't be the guy who's doing it because of the Joker. He has to believe in Batman. And I don't believe in Batman. I don't believe he lives up in the house with that kid. <laughs> I don't believe it. So I went to them and told them I didn't think I could do it. And they almost had me committed. They thought it was, I was so, it was the stupidest thing that they, the stupidest decision they had ever heard from a director. But I said, I'm, I'm, if I do this picture, you won't be happy and I won't be happy. So I, I, I you should really get somebody else. So I didn't do it. So you went with, would have been the Burbs at that time? It would have been Explorers. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad you made that <laughs> because that one's near and dear to my heart. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I could go line by line, but sadly, we don't have that kind of time. And for our listeners, I urge you to revisit Joe's films because they're so diverse and interesting and really fun. And even, a, and especially the ones we didn't mention, like Matinee and Small Soldiers. And, and you should also visit the movies that they're running on Shot Factory. That oh, that's what I'm going to talk about next. That's what I'm going to talk about next. Yeah, I'm definitely, you know, clearing the way for you here. to do that. So, yeah, so that's what you have coming up here. You have these, 
you've always been this guy who, if you watch your filmography, there's always, you know, these classic horror or genre films peppered in from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that you infuse in everything. And obviously, Shout Factory and Scream Factory is like the home for that kind of cult, you know, cinema right now. And it seems like a match made in heaven for you guys to do this film Inferno. So where did it start? Well, Shout's been very good to me because they put out a, a number of my movies and really expanded and, and, and upgraded editions. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. forever grateful for that. Um, and also they have the rights to a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff, which they have also uh, upgraded into uh, you know better versions than we've usually seen on them. And so when they asked me to do this, uh, they said, here's a list of things that we own and we, we want to do this weekend thing uh, where you will run, run a bunch of movies and you'll do introductions to them and uh, just pick some. I picked, I, I think, five, is it? I think um, there's seven, yeah. Seven, whatever. Uh, and um, they were things I thought that, obviously, they're movies that I like, uh, and, but there were some of them that I thought maybe people should be a little more familiar with, a movie like The Sadist, which is a pretty remarkable, very low-budget movie uh, that's that's got a reputation but doesn't get seen that often. And then, you know, I think there's the, the classic chestnuts like, you know, House on a Haunted Hill, and, you know, which is my, probably my favorite Wooden Castle movies, which look great, you know. And, then, mm-hmm. and that, that's some of them, it's, become, it's difficult because they, they've fallen into public domain mm-hmm. and they're available from all over from anybody who happens to have a crappy VHS that they want to put out. Uh, and, uh, and so these guys are at least going back to the original materials as much as possible and making these pictures, presenting them uh, as impressively as can be done. Um, So I was happy to be part of it, you know? Yeah. How did you narrow down your list? I have to assume it's got to be huge and there's got to be a lot of stuff. The list of things they own is really big. It's really daunting. Um, I I chose pictures that I, I, I thought people should be familiar with if they weren't and also things that I knew that I could talk intelligently about without having to go back to the history books and try to you know look them up and uh there there are some surprises on that list i don't think people would have probably thought that i would pick a picture like how to make a monster for sure uh, which is not great cinema but um (laughs) has has a lot of a lot of cool things in it and about it and the fact that it's the sequel to both the teenage frankenstein and the teenage werewolf movies Teenage Werewolf is unavailable, unfortunately, has been for years because of its ownership is it's owned by James Nicholson's widow, who is under the mistaken impression that all the movies that he left her are, are worth their weight in gold. And in fact, what she's done is she kept them off the market. And, and today's audiences are not familiar anymore with them. And they have the value is decreasing every day that she doesn't do anything with them. So that's too bad. But that's a good picture. And then there's also a movie that isn't really very good, but I chose because of one actor, um, King of the Zombies, which stars Nantan Moreland. I'd never heard of this one. Well, he's a he's a African American comedian who was very very big in in the uh, in, in the black theater circles, and but played supporting parts in lots of Charlie Chans and this is a, a an early zombie movie, nineteen forty one, and uh, Moreland is the heart and soul of the movie. He is he is he's of course playing a valet, which was the thing that black people did in those movies, uh, and every line he's got is hilarious. He is a one of the I think one of the one of the great comedians and, and overlooked because of the quality of some of the movies that he had to be in. But what's interesting about him um, is that he was chosen by Champ Howard to be one of the Stooges. And Shep did a picture called um, Strange Case of Dr. Rx. And, and there was a, a scene he did with Mantan. 
and he thought, boy, this guy's really got great timing. And, uh, and then he sort of looked into him and he had all these verbal routines that he used to do, which were hilarious. And, and so he, he said to Mullen Larry, uh, you know, if, um, if when the time comes and one of us has to be replaced, I think Mantan should be the next stooge. And uh, the other two guys said, yeah, absolutely. And so when it was time for Shep to retire, they brought it up to Columbia. They said, well, you know, how about, how about this guy being the third stooge? And Columbia said, well, uh, he, he's not white. <laughs> well, it was, is, yeah, the 1940s, wasn't it? It was, yeah. the, it was, it was the, I think it was the 50s, early 50s. Uh, anyway, it, it didn't happen. But Mo was particularly disappointed because he thought that he would have sort of given new juice to the act. Right. And, uh, and that the Stooges wouldn't have gotten stale because Mo didn't like Joe Besser, who came in and replaced Shemp. And uh, he thought that the whole thing went downhill because of that. And then, but with Mantan, he thought they could have kept it going for even longer. Um, anyway, if, if you don't know Mantan Moreland's work, see this picture uh, and then seek out some other, other ones that he did because yeah. they, they liked this picture so much, they remade it about two years later as, as Revenge of the Zombies. And it was the, it was the same plot, a different <laughs> cast, except for Mantan. We played the same oh, part again. <laughs> See, this is why you're the perfect guy for that, because colonels like that, a lot of people wouldn't bring up. So I'm curious, how much time do they give you to kind of talk these up before you get to intro? Well, that's what you, I'm know, you don't want to bore people. The, the, the thing about doing intros is that people go, well, OK, well, when's the movie come on? I'm looking forward uh, to them. <laughs> but they're, 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 they're brief, but they're, they're, they're sort of like trailers from hell. Uh, sure. Commentaries, you know, they're, they're two, three minutes and, okay. um, and they just set the stage for the movie. Now, uh, I know IMDb is not the uh, holy source of truth for everything, but it does list some upcoming projects and you never know what's actually in development. So I'm wondering when we can or if we can uh, expect another Joe Dante feature film coming up. Well, you know, as has happened many times, that has less to do with Joe Dante than it does with <laughs> a lot of other factors. Fair enough. <laughs> um, there's always there's always the possibility. I, I, I do. I do keep busy with uh, trailers from hell and with the, the podcast sure. yeah um and but uh I'm, I'm pitching stuff all over the place we're we're all in in sort of late career orson welles mode where we just spend more time asking for money than we do actually making movies yeah yeah and corman's still kicking it too he's still trying to he, produce movies yes. too he, and he's bless him i mean yeah he is he is a force of nature yeah the guy does not quit and uh they're giving me the rap but again for our listeners Joe Dante's Fear Inferno runs on Screen Factory TV and the Shout Factory TV app, which I have. Uh, it's on Saturday, September 3rd. It starts at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Joe, I will be watching, and I really, really appreciate your time today. Great stuff. Oh, thanks a lot, Mike. 